To Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Our guest today is a neuroscientist who is both a cannabinoid medicine researcher as well as a cannabis patient. At one time, she did research on the effects of drugs on the brain for the National Institute of Drug Abuse in the U.S. She is the author of two books, Train Your Brain to Get Thin and Vitamin Weed, a four-step plan to prevent and reverse endocannabinoid deficiency. Joining us from Denver, Colorado is Dr. Michelle Ross, the founder and CEO of the Nonprofit Impact Network. Dr. Ross, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great. Tell us what the Impact Network is. Sure. Well, we're a 501c3 nonprofit uh, based in Colorado, and we're really dedicated to improving marijuana policy and accelerating cannabinoid therapeutics. Uh, that spells out impact if you haven't caught on already. Um, but we really are focused on uh, creating uh, clinical research studies that can be done outside the university system, but done in a, in a legal way. Um, compliant with the federal government and able to be published in scientific journals. And the reason why this is so important is because the universities in the United States really restrict what you can do in terms of doing research. They restrict what professors can say about research uh, when they try to educate the community. So um, by being an independent research institute that is registered with NIH, we're allowed some flexibility in what we can do, what kinds of marijuana products we can study. Um, we can do sort of observational studies, um, uh, things that you can't really do with the University of Mississippi marijuana, which is really bad quality, as you might have heard about in the news. Okay, let's go back to when you were 15 years old. Did you tell your friends that you wanted to be a neuroscientist? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um I think I was telling my friends when I was like five years old. So um, I have this Lisa Frank, um, like unicorn diary. And I think it was actually second grade. I wrote this and it said like they had a spot in it. It's like favorite foods. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I actually wrote down, I want to be a brain scientist pause and a, uh, and an actress. So, which is sort of funny because I ended up doing both, but <laughs> not too many, not too many second graders, you know, know what they want to do and actually do it uh, later on in life. So no, that's uh that's fascinating because you were also in a TV show, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was on big brother in 2009. Take us back to when you worked for the national Institute on drug abuse. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your transition from that to becoming a cannabis activist? Mm-hmm. So um, I actually never worked um, at NIDA. Um, I was funded by NIDA, um, but I worked on my PhD at UT Southwestern Medical Center, uh, just to clarify, because mm-hmm. NIDA is actually in D.C. So, okay. uh, so yeah, so I was, um, I was working on my PhD, um, finished up, uh, did a short postdoc at Caltech, um, 
and then end up on TV actually sort of through a bet um, that I couldn't get on a reality TV show. So that's sort of funny. <laughs> happened. Uh, it's a really weird story. Um, but I always win. So I ended up on a reality TV show. But I didn't win that one. But, um, but then um, I actually had not used cannabis most of my adult life. One, because I was a drug addiction researcher. If you're caught doing any types of drugs, you're going to lose your entire career. I mean, that's a violation of policies, um, including cannabis, which is a Schedule One drug in the United States. So I had never really used it um, up until the point where actually um, one day I woke up and I had a palsy, which is like your wrist and your hand doesn't work. And it was actually like all curled up, really painful. And I thought, okay, this is sort of weird. Like it's like when your, your, your leg goes numb or something, it'll go back to normal in a second. It didn't. Like the next day, the next week, the next month, doctors actually thought um, that I had something wrong with my nerves and I was going to have to have some kind of surgery where they're like going to have to reconnect nerves and everything to wake my hand back up. Um, and I was going, okay, I don't want this kind of surgery because they're saying it's not going to really work. And, um, you know, it, I actually had a chance that my hand might never work or like my arm might not work. It, it sounded horrible. And I started investigating, you know, as a scientist, all these different ways that you might be able to improve nerve health or do something. Um, and cannabis was one of those, um, along with um, cannabis plus acupuncture and a little bit of massage. It's actually I have inflammation in my um, my nerves that basically if I don't use cannabis now, um, both my arms and my legs, actually, the, the nerves stop working and I'm like, I'm like literally curled up. So there's something in my body, whether it's an endocannabinoid deficiency or whatever it is, but um, cannabis is the one thing that keeps my nerves working and keeps me being able to work, able to walk, able to be normal. And just that alone wasn't really enough for me to really be an advocate. Strangely enough, I had to keep being shown lessons over and over again. And it wasn't really until I actually had another health issue um, and I ended up with my lungs collapsed. Like I had a whole bunch of health issues. I wasn't supposed like basically I was hospitalized um, at the end of 2014 and I wasn't supposed to make it. And I did. And actually cannabis oil got me out of a wheelchair into a walker, into a cane, into a healthy young woman that people would never guess that I was supposed to be written off and like not even supposed to be able to move or be a, be a scientist or, you know, an intellectual ever again. So cannabis oil in particular was what helped me and then got me just moving in. And basically just like I would die for this plant and for the right for people to use this plant. So these experiences, no matter how horrible they sound, really instill within me. Um, you know, that motivation every day to tell my story, to find other patients, to find people that have never heard about cannabis and let them know that there is another way besides pharmaceuticals. Were you apprehensive about taking cannabis initially? Oh, hell yeah. Um, so it's sort of funny. So I have um, a family history of mental health issues. And one thing you're taught, you know, in a psychiatry department, um, at least back when I was training, there was a lot of those propaganda type of uh, papers being published uh, by groups like um, publications like The Lancet, right? So the UK study showing, oh, skunk, it causes psychosis and people that might, you know, have um, psychiatric problems, right? Um, so I was really scared to use it until I was older in life and sort of went through that window of say, okay, I'm not going to be a schizophrenic. So I was really scared about it. I think the first time I used cannabis, I was probably like 20, 
28 or 29. So I was right at the end. And I was really worried that I was like going to wake up one day and be like, oh, no, I'm crazy. Clearly, the science shows that that's not real. But, you know, it's different when it's yourself. Right. And, and there are there are real concerns. But I actually was a, a weird one when it came to getting adjusted to cannabis. And it's actually sort of a story I tell a lot of patients because some people don't feel good after like smoking the first time. Right. Um, and for some people like myself, it took like a whole week and then another week for me really to get adjusted to the medicine and feel comfortable in it. And I think that's because some people's brains do take actually about three weeks to get adjusted to say a new medication, just like you have to get adjusted to an antidepressant or um, an anti-anxiety drug. So for me, it took about three weeks of daily smoking for me to actually just feel normal and relaxed and pain-free on it. How long did it take for your issue with your hand and, and to rectify itself? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I, I will say this. Just having the first thing that woke up was my pinky. So it literally like moved like the tiniest bit. And at first I didn't think it had, but then I was just like, it's wiggling like for the first time in three months. And I, I started shrieking in, in the massage therapist's office. Like I was so happy. But from that point on to get my entire hand working, it really took like physical therapy. Like it took about two more months for it to completely wake up. But every single day it just got better and better. And I was like, Hey, putting, putting cannabis on my hand, eating cannabis, taking all my vitamins. I, I was ready. Like that was my full-time job was making sure my hand like survived. You said you were smoking it. When did you start taking the oil? Um, so the first time I actually started using RSO um, was in early 2015. So um, I actually had um, a family friends um, in Oregon that made amazing, very clean oil. And that really was what ended up helping me sort of like I'm very sensitive to THC. So it's almost like it put me in a cannabis coma. I, I hate to say that because that sounds scary for people, but my brain and my body was so ill that the best thing it could do was to go to sleep and heal and repair. And I would wake up and I could actually, I'd actually slept. I wasn't spasming. I wasn't in pain. And every day I just got slowly better and better. And it was fine. I was just like, I'll take as much as I can get in my body. And it really did, I think, help regenerate a lot of the things that were wrong with my body. Michelle, when you first started taking the oil, did you just take a tiny a tiny amount or did you just kind of dive in head first? Um, I took a little bit. I mean, it does take a while for your body to get used to it. Um, also, I didn't have a ton of it. So, you know, you do with what you have. So, Were you doing it just once a day or three times a day? or uh, Twice a day. Twice a day. Michelle, do you consider cannabis a drug? <laughs> Um, yes, because it does um, act on receptors and have physiological changes. Um, so sugar is a drug, right? Like there's so many things that are drugs. To, to say that cannabis isn't a drug is, would be ridiculous. But I look at it more as uh, rather than a drug, it's more of a nutraceutical, I think, than, than a drug. Well, yeah. So, it, I mean, it, it's your definition of things. I actually do think that there are three types of marijuana that, um, so you're, you're going to have recreational marijuana. You're going to have pharmaceutical marijuana, which is, you know, your synthetics or the, um, 
forms of marijuana that are approved in clinical trials. And then the third type is nutraceutical uh, marijuana or what I call vitamin weed. So I do actually agree with you, even though it sounds like I'm disagreeing. Um, But I do think that this plant is safe. um, It's non-toxic and it really should be regulated like a nutraceutical. You know, Michelle, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world because uh, several years ago, well, I guess about a year and a half ago, until I interviewed Corey on commercial radio, I always thought that anyone who smoked cannabis, smoked marijuana, was a pothead Mm -hmm. and it had no medicinal value at all. Then I interviewed Corey and got to understand exactly what this plant does. It heals the body, whether you smoke it recreationally or whether you take the oil, whether you vape it, whatever form you take it in, an edible, it heals the body. And I think one of the biggest frustrations in my mind is that people who discount the medicinal value of marijuana really don't understand it. And I think at the political level, it is astounding the number of people in elected office who don't understand this plant because it is nothing more than a plant. What are your thoughts? Um, You know, I find it fascinating how much uh, stigma there is around the endocannabinoid system in general. I've actually had emails from people where they say, um, you know, they hate marijuana so much, they want to know how how to remove their endocannabinoid system from their bodies. And I'm like, oh, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I actually had that question come up. Um, and what most people don't know is that they actually consume about 200 milligrams of dietary phytocannabinoids um, each day. And those come from things like spices, right? Um, not necessarily from cannabis. Every single human on this earth consumes phytocannabinoids daily. You know, when you frame it like that, I think that would shift some people's perceptions. I mean, we are all eating cannabinoids. Yes, they're not your traditional ones from cannabis, but they're there. You're going to get terpenes. You're going to get some beta-caryophyllin, which is activating your CB2 receptors. So we are consuming phytocannabinoids. So for people to be um, to hate on on the endocannabinoid system, one is just ridiculous. Um, but two, to really understand the science behind this, the endocannabinoid system is your largest neurotransmitter system in your entire body. And it regulates every other neurotransmitter system. So your dopamine, right? The pleasure neurotransmitter, serotonin, which regulates sleep and eating and and so many other things. So when people are don't want to look at the endocannabinoid system as something that we can use to our advantage to heal ourselves or to offset imbalances in the rest of our body. It's just plain silly. You know, Michelle, I was reading a piece today about cannabis. And in the United States from, uh, was it 1854 to 1942, cannabis was in over 2,000 medications in the United States. What is frustrating to me as a former, well, I guess I'm still a hypocrite in the fact that I, <laughs> I, I've, I've felt uh, as many people do towards cannabis, but I've done a 180 now. And uh, I think, Corey, would you agree that I'm a big proponent of You've can- done a 180. I've done a 180. Absolutely, you've <laughs> yes. done a 180. Yeah. And you slowly started educating yourself. And I used to think, I'm getting so proud of him. He's getting, <laughs> he's learning more and more. 
<laughs> but I was shocked at the number of medications that cannabis was in prior to 1942 in the United States and in the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, the American Medical Association fought against it because it was in support of the continued use of cannabis. Now the American Medical Association has done a 180 the other way and is totally opposed to it. How do we go about changing public attitudes towards cannabis? Oh, goodness. Um, You know, that's a hard one just because, you know, we're not in the same world that we were in the 40s, right? I mean, pharmaceuticals hadn't had the same kind of hold that they do in our uh, modern lifestyle, right? Uh, we don't know anyone that isn't on a, like at least one medication, right? So it's become the norm. Like uh, prescriptions are like our new vitamins, right? Um, and it's really hard to undo that culture and really sort of revert back to plant-based medicine. Um, and I mean, you see this not just cannabis, but any plant-based medicine, right? Essential oils, um, uh, because I deal in mental health, right? Um, one of the things I suggest for people with anxiety or sleep issues is lavender oil. And that's just something that people are more used or accustomed to picking up a Xanax or, you know, or another type, like a sleep aid, right? Um, and I'm sorry, I'm probably not saying the right drugs for you in Canada. You'd be like, what's No, no, Xanax we're, we're familiar with. Oh, yeah. We, we get all the same things you do. Don't worry. <laughs> I didn't know whether they had different names or them or not, because, like, um, I know THC, right? It's it's Nabilone in, in Canada, and that's not – we call it Marinol in, in the United States. So there are some drugs that are, that are different. Michelle, I'm, I just wanted to ask you, since you, were, you brought up the mental health issue, what's your take on I, – I know I've heard two sides to the story that uh, with schizophrenia and uh, – Teenagers should they or shouldn't they be smoking cannabis? Does it does it? You know the reports out there saying that it can cause schizophrenia. Okay, so to my knowledge and in my opinion, I do not think that uh, cannabis can cause schizophrenia in any patient. However, if you have the genetic background for schizophrenia and you are going to have schizophrenia, I believe the literature suggests that you may have the schizophrenia onset come on like a year or two earlier if you're a heavy cannabis user in your teens. So so it's going to give you an extra year or two of the disease. It's not going to cause it in someone who wasn't prone to it or wasn't destined to have it due to their genetics. I had somebody uh, reach out to me just the other day who has a son who's schizophrenic and wanted to know about treating him with cannabis. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, so um, I do say that using high THC strains uh, for schizophrenia is never a good idea. It can actually um, cause psychosis or uh, symptoms to to be worse. Um, There is some relief uh, with CBD. However, a lot of patients with schizophrenia are actually on other medications like your traditional antipsychotics. And what many people do not know is that CBD or cannabidiol can actually inhibit the liver enzymes that break down drugs like antipsychotics. So you have to be very careful when you're starting a patient um, who is already on antipsychotics and add CBD into the mix. And CBD has been shown in the literature to help with symptoms of schizophrenia. So you have people that are trying to play doctor at home where they're just adding CBD to their their cocktail right, of, of drugs that they have at home. And it can be very dangerous because you might elevate the levels of antipsychotics in their bloodstream and then 
the patient might have a negative effect, right? You don't want them to feel suicidal or, or have some kind of other issues that land them in the ER. So you have to be very careful and titrate down the dose of antipsychotics they're on. So it's 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 definitely one of the more challenging areas of medi- cannabinoid medicine to deal with because you're dealing with very high-risk patients and also um, an area where we're just not quite sure of, of dosing and drug interactions. You know, Michelle, one of the things that has shocked me in doing this program and interviewing your number 135 is the number of patients we talk to who have some very, very serious illnesses who have managed to reverse and even cure those illnesses through cannabis. But what has shocked me is the number of pharmaceutical drugs a lot of people are on. It is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, I don't take, I don't even take an aspirin. Mm-hmm. But some people, we talked to one fellow a couple of weeks ago, Corey, who was on 36 different prescription mm-hmm. a day. Oh, my gosh. 36 a day. Yeah. So I said, were those 36 pills? He said, no. Sometimes he took one to combat the effects of another. Another, another. yeah. Another, and, another one was to combat the side effects of that one. And it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say this. At the University of Colorado, I believe they, they developed some kind of software program where they're trying to track how many medications patients were on. And the benefits of just removing one of those medications was so huge in terms of reducing drug interactions and, and accidental overdose, right? Just one. I mean, like, this is like the hope that we can go from 36 prescriptions to 35. Like, that still sounds crazy to me. We need to drop a lot more, but... I mean, when you're looking at cannabis, there's no other thing that allows people to get off of so many medications so fast. And I mean, the improvement in quality of life, the reduction of deaths, I mean, it's astounding. And for health insurances or governments not to pay attention to that is criminal. It's absolutely criminal. Michelle, when I was uh, trying to beat my cancer using cannabis oil, um, I had a pre a condition previously called uh, post-sternotomy syndrome and the past five years I'd been in agony and I was just focused on trying to get rid of my cancer. I didn't even think that getting rid of the pain with the oil might be a spinoff and I was on 10 to 15 Tylenol 3s, Percocet, Dilaudid, Morphine, OPM, Oxycodone, on and on and on and within 10 days I was down to half a Tylenol 3. Yep. <laughs> you know, that quickly. Within 10 yeah. days. That's Within amazing. 10 days. Yeah. yeah, well you saw the bag of medication I was returning Oh, yeah. She came, uh, she picked me up the other day, and she had a bag, like a, a grocery bag, actually. Yeah. And I said, what's in there? And she, she opens it up. It's all the pills she was... That I was on. You were back on. Back in the day. And it was half full. Yeah. And what did the pharmacist say? I can't remember, because I just bought it here. She said, did, did you take all... All these, yeah. Did you take all these, yeah. And you said, well, this is only half of them. <laughs> yeah, this is only half of them. And she knows that I that all I use is cannabis oil now. And, and uh, yeah, quite amazing how quickly I could get off, though. Michelle, given your research, would you say that most people who are listening to us right now have an endocannabinoid deficiency? I absolutely would say that most patients, at least in the Western world, have an endocannabinoid deficiency. 
And I mean, we can go a little bit into why, but I mean, the modern uh, Western lifestyle, we don't sleep enough. We eat very poorly. And I think this endocannabinoid deficiency really starts at birth. I mean, if your mother is endocannabinoid deficient, how are you going to have the proper amount of endocannabinoids and build a healthy endocannabinoid system in your own brain? Um, And we're actually starting to see that now because we're having an escalation of... um, I would say neurodevelopmental disorders like epilepsy and autism. Um, and autism has actually been linked to endocrine system dysfunction at the receptor level. Um, so I think that there is a very clear endocannabinoid deficiency that is happening, that is not being treated, um, and is being passed on from generation to generation. Do you think this... I'm just thinking off the top of my head here right now that the trend toward bottle feeding as opposed to breastfeeding has had an impact. Um, absolutely, there are um, endocannabinoids in breast milk, and those are important for uh, the baby's brain development, right? And so, bottled uh, milk and bottled formula doesn't have um, not only those endocannabinoids, but some of the other building blocks uh, of endocannabinoids. So you're getting sort of a, a two hit, uh, you know, issue here where you're not only not getting the endocannabinoids, but then you don't have the basic building blocks of them as well. What's the best form of ingestion for people? Goodness. Um, you know, there's no blanket statement when it comes to cannabinoid medicine. Um, the best uh, route of ingestion is the one that makes you feel the healthiest and the happiest. For some people, that can be, you know, um, eating it, right, and edible. For some people, that's smoking it. For some people, it's, it's none of the above and using a topical. For some people, and including myself, I'll just say this right now because I always love to say vagina on a, on a radio interview, but I use vagina. <gasps> No, but I have endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. I mean, um, it's been one of the things that saves my life because uh, I'm able to consume, you know, I'm able to get my THC into my system without feeling super high. Yeah, without getting high. Yeah, no, I'm a big big backer of that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. um, I mean, there's so many beautiful ways that we can use this plant. So, you know, the possibilities with it are endless and i tell patients i'm like explore if something doesn't work for you you know try a little cbd with your thc try a different way there's going to be a way that works best for you and your body and no one can tell you what's perfect for you michelle explain this to me when someone has lung cancer and Corey will know this far better than i that one of the best methods of ingestion for them is by suppository now, why does a suppository work better for lung cancer? Um, so lung you're, cancer, you're free to say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I would only say that you're, you're trying to avoid first pass, so you're going to be absorbing more of the cannabinoids. Um, but, you know, okay. uh, lung cancer is not, not my forte. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's just interesting, you know, this is the kind of the role that I play now, Michelle, is I, I talk to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, a week and uh, deal with people with different cancers. And so I have a lot of people that are using suppositories for, for different cancers. But what I've noticed with lung cancers, stage three, stage four lung cancers, it's amazing what happens when they use suppositories. 
Um, I just wanted to ask uh, Michelle a little bit about uh, cannabis for seniors. I, I noticed, um, you, you know, includes Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, etc. Um, what's your recommendations with with somebody with Parkinson's disease? I don't work with seniors daily, unfortunately. I wish mm. I could um, because that's obviously um, a population that really needs this medicine. We do see that there's endocannabinoid dysfunction, you know, at, that sort of happens at the same time as aging. And I think that the, supplementing the, the endocannabinoid system might even be able to reverse some of the, the changes that we normally uh, associate with aging or diseases of aging but i think you know just even smoking it for parkinson's i mean i've seen the videos where people stop you know shaking Um, that to me i i can't imagine why you wouldn't let somebody with parkinson's consume it in that way Um, i do believe that cannabis should be in every single hospice and nursing home um and there thank goodness um some places in colorado and on the west coast where uh, cannabis is permitted um not necessarily you know on on the the you know the welcome manual when you get in there but it's allowed and it really should be um specifically for alzheimer's um Cannabis is is actually associated with less violence in patients because they don't get agitated. They don't hit their caregivers or their, their family members. And that's so important. You just want to be able to age and let go with dignity. And I think that's what cannabis gives people, gives them their dignity back. Michelle, what do you think your health would be like today without cannabis? Without cannabis, I'd be dead because I would have killed myself from the pain and from the inability to walk and think and breathe and i mean to be very clear here i mean i you're looking at somebody who had attempted suicide multiple times until they (laughs) until i was using cannabis so um that's sort of a hard thing for me to admit but at the same time i know how desperate like many patients are and they need to hear that because you know, it's some people won't even use it as a last resort. And I'm like, I beg them, like, please, please get on cannabis and it will make the pain go away. It will make so many other things go away that make your life unbearable. Do you know what? You're not the first person to tell us that. And yep. uh, we've, we've heard it from a number of people. We've asked them how, how they would be today if they weren't taking cannabis. And uh, many of them say they'd be dead. Yeah. Yeah, I I was desperate. Like, I really, I saw no point in living. I was just like, I don't want to be a vegetable. Like, (laughs) like, when you're told, like, sorry, you need to go see a therapist because you're never going to be a scientist again. You know, you're not going to be, you can't use your arms. You can't think. Like, I couldn't even hold an iPhone. That's how bad I was. Um, And, you know, you as a, as a very, very smart person, I just couldn't even imagine. I'm like, I can't read a book. I can't even, like, think like it just was over for me and you know to see the, even just small improvements every single day on cannabis oil it just gave me the hope to keep pushing and one day it was going to get better and you know even over the past two years there's still been some small improvements i used to run marathons there's no way i'm ever going to be doing that ever again but the fact that i can walk um you know one mile like at a slow pace and like i I'm not in a wheelchair. It's it's amazing to me. I am so grateful for every day cannabis has given me. And I thank that plant every day because, again, without that plant, I would not be here anymore. When you run into people who are resistant to taking cannabis and they have a serious health issue, you can't convince other people to take cannabis. When you have talked to them about it and they've used it, 
What has been their response back to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, when I counsel people to take it and they don't, and then they end up taking it later, usually they don't tell me because they're embarrassed, you know? Um, finally, the doctor was actually right, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, for, for most people, it's it's that aha moment, right? When cannabis works and most people are very thankful that, you know, that conversation was started in the first place. Michelle, as we conclude this, I want you to talk a bit about your book, Vitamin Weed, a four-step plan to prevent and reverse endocannabinoid deficiency, because I think that would be important for a lot of people to get and to really understand the endocannabinoid system, specifically for those people who want to keep it as opposed to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, that's the newest surgery. It's all the rage now. Um no, so it's it's a real easy guide. Um, I wanted to write something that wasn't so over your head. It wasn't like a scientific paper or a paraphrasing of all the papers out there because there are some books there that are written and they are over most people's heads. Um, I wanted a book that you can give your doctor, uh, that you could give your mom, that you could give your, your coworker, and they would understand why we need to feed our endocannabinoid system. Um, so the four steps really are that you need to take away things from that are harming your endocannabinoid system. People don't realize that there are medications, there are foods that are neurotoxic um, that can damage your endocannabinoid system. And there's other things that you can add to your diet um, or um, different medications that would work better um, with uh, cannabinoid medicine once, once, it's, once it's added in. But I, I say remove then you need to prime your receptors by adding good things. Then you need to do stress management. Um, and that's sometimes something that uh, cannabis users don't do, especially if they're new, right? So it's more than just adding cannabis into your life. It's a whole lifestyle change. And I mean, you see sort of cannabis encourages that lifestyle. Um, that plan is is a nice little force and guiding you on, on your, the journey that you need to take. But, you know, when you're doing yoga, when you're doing meditation, when you're being mindful, when you're volunteering, like all these things that bring down your stress levels and actually allow your cannabinoid receptors to be present and receive uh, the medicine. That's really what it's all about. Get that proper sleep and be ready for cannabis. And then the last step, of course, is either adding in things that boost your endocannabinoid system, whether it's uh, CBD, whether it's uh, plant-based phytocannabinoids, or it's cannabis itself. Um, but really, it's a whole lifestyle change. You can't just Adding cannabis, I think, and, and expecting, you know, miracles. I mean, thankfully, this plant is actually that amazing that if you do have something like RSO oil and you do have a horrible diet, you're still going to see some improvement. But for real change for somebody who's very chronically ill for a very long time, I really do believe that you need all those steps in order to, to make a full recovery. Michelle, it was a pleasure to meet you, and uh, you have such an inspiring story, and it's great to see that you're on the road to recovery and in good health. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Very much appreciated, Michelle. And that's another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.